0: Hello, and welcome to the Practicing Clinicians Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Reynolds. Today's episode features experts in pulmonary and critical care medicine answering audience questions from a live virtual Q&A webinar titled Evidence and Guidelines for COVID-19 in Hospital Management, putting it all together. During this podcast, Dr. Vikram Mukherjee and Cameron Smith will answer the questions that cover important topics including supportive care management, such as oxygen support, glycemic control, and anticoagulation, escalation of therapy in patients with worsening oxygen requirements, use of remdesivir in patients with renal dysfunction, and a brief commentary on long COVID. For more information on Drs. Mukherjee and Ms. Smith, along with a link to the complete program, including the accredited webcast, please visit the show notes. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say on this important topic. Joining us today are expert faculty members. Dr. Vikram Mukherjee is an assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the New York University School of Medicine. He also serves as the director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at Bellevue Hospital in New York. Cameron Smith is the lead advanced practice provider in the medical ICU at Bellevue Hospital as well. I wanted to thank both of them for being here with us today. So, question for you, Drs. Mukherjee and Cameron Smith. How do you manage glycemic control in patients who are receiving dexamethasone for COVID?
1: Great question, Dania. Maybe I'll start and then hand it over to Cameron. First of all, to our audience members, thank you for joining. The first question about glycemic control as you know, steroids are part and parcel frontline therapy for most patients who are hypoxic from COVID-19. And though it has a significant improvement in mortality and even morbidity, it does come with a significant side effect profile. Major among them is hyperglycemia. We target blood sugar of 140 to 180. And we usually do that in the inpatient setting in the med-surg side with sliding skill insulin and maybe some lantus. In the ICU side, which is where most of us work, we have a low threshold to reach out for an insulin drip to keep the blood sugars within a 140 to 180 range. Again, not too tight and risk hypoglycemia, but not too liberal and risk the adverse effects of uncontrolled hyperglycemia either. Cam, over to you.
2: Vikram, thank you for your answer. The only thing that I think I'd add to it is when you have your patients in the ICU, a lot of times you'll have patients who are intubated. So on those insulin sliding scales, you're going to want to make sure that you're timing them along with their finger stick glucose every four to six hours instead of a TIDAC type of um, type of dosing. And we do use a very often long-term acting insulin nightly and the insulin sliding scale. And if really needed, if they're on very high dose, dexamethasone we will put them on standing insulin as well. Thank you both so much. So We have another question coming in here about
0: how to maximize non-invasive ventilation strategies to prevent patients from progressing to requiring mechanical ventilation. So how do you maximize high-flow nasal cannula and BIPAP
2: to prevent
0: patients progressing to the vent?
2: Thank you so much for the question. It's kind of a tough one because it's very patient-dependent. And so, of course, we want to put everyone on the lowest possible oxygen that they may need. But you'll see that these patients with ARDS, with COVID, sometimes will progress very rapidly. And so you have to have all these tools at your disposal because we'll find patients may be on high flow nasal cannula and then they'll have to very quickly go to BiPAP. That said, in a high flow nasal cannula situation, if you're going from your regular nasal cannula and then you need additional support, you need additional flow, we will initiate that high flow nasal cannula and then we'll start going up on the flow rate as well as the percent oxygen, uh, keeping them within a good range of typically 90 to 92% and above. And then if patients are failing high flow, then we may go to a BiPAP setting. But it's again, it's very patient dependent. I wish I could give you a cut and dry answer for all of them.
1: Great points, Cam. And this is a pressing issue that comes up all the time, as you can imagine. As patients come from the emergency room and go to the hospital floors, a significant majority will, despite all interventions, decompensate and come to the ICU. I think just to add to Cam's point, we should recognize that patients who are requiring high flow or are requiring non-invasive ventilation are very critically ill, and we shouldn't underestimate that they will or they might need an ICU level of care and intubation if the trajectory can continues in a downward trend. Because the take-home point is if you're putting a patient on high flow or BiPAP, be very careful. Put them at a step-down level or a high or a or an ICU level of care. Uh, simply because if that's the trajectory they're taking, the chances of them becoming more hypoxic and requiring invasive mechanical ventilation, maybe ECMO down the line, are not insignificant. Mm-hmm. So take that as a marker of severity of disease and a worsening of outcomes might fall. I would add that high-flow nasal cannula has a huge role to play in COVID ARDS and COVID pneumonia. BiPAPs, we should be a little bit more careful about. There is some signal of increased mortality in patients who are treated with BiPAP. So when you have a patient who is full code, think about transitioning from high-flow nasal cannula directly to invasive mechanical ventilation and skipping the BiPAP step. Thank
0: you both. One thing that comes up up frequently with these patients is clotting risk. And so, what criteria do you have in place to transition someone from prophylactic to therapeutic anticoagulation?
2: I can take this one. In the beginning, we we commonly monitored all inflammatory markers for patients. We also monitored D dimer very often because, in the very beginning in 2020, we'd see a lot of patients coming in that already had significant clots throughout their bodies, and we would immediately put them on a therapeutic dose of heparin. That said, more recently, we have not seen as high prevalence of this significant clotting that we did previously. And so I if we approach a patient with COVID, we're not going to immediately put them on therapeutic. Everyone in the hospital will get prophylaxis unless otherwise indicated or contraindicated. Because they're not moving. They're at high risk for clots at baseline. That said, with COVID, we still are monitoring those inflammatory markers. The D dimer will watch patients. And if we have a high suspicion of clots, we'll get Dopplers. And then if we find a clot, then we'll go to that therapeutic dose. That said, I believe in Vikram, correct me if I'm wrong, but we were looking at a D dimer jump from, I think it was 3000. And if it increased, significantly maybe by a factor of a thousand, then we would think about looking for those clots and then giving the anticoagulation?
1: Absolutely, and This is really a good question because the practice of medicine on how to protect the patients with COVID from clots has been evolving from day one. We know from the early days of the pandemic, when it was still in Italy and hadn't hit the U.S. as much, that 66% of ICU admissions, when you scan their legs, they had evidence of deep pain thrombi. Around 5 to 10% of them will have arterial clots as well, manifesting as strokes or MIs or intestinal ischemia. And there's mul- multiple reasons behind that. One of the major reasons because the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus attaches onto the endothelial lining of the cells, invades it, causes an inflammatory cascade, and clots follow. What to do about that? The jury is still up there, and the data has is... Are still evolving. We know that they clot quite often, so which is why echoing Cam's point that your index of suspicion for DVTs and arterial clots and so on should be fairly high. We often on early in the pandemic, we put patients on heparin just because to prevent these clots. But then we did see that there's a high risk of bleeding, especially in patients who are critically ill, already are on steroids, and that just worsens the gastrointestinal bleed. Putting them on heparin may make things worse. So the, the best evidence that we are following now and this might be not true six months down the line is have a really high index of suspicion. Peace, watch the legs, keep an eye on the PE screen for the clots all over the body. If the clinical situation so suggests, and then a heparinize with low, with unfractioned heparin, which you can quickly turn off and even reverse if the situation mandates, if you diagnose a clot. But great question. We know that these patients are prothrombotic. How to prevent them preemptively is still up in the air.
0: Thank you both for those very practical points. In patients who do have worsening oxygen requirements, let's say that they're already receiving dexamethasone, what factors do you consider when considering adjunctive therapies like tocilizumab or baricitinib? And do you have any tips or practical advice for formulary management when some of these new agents are either released by an EUA or FDA approved?
2: Sure. I won't have too much to say on this other than it's really going to be hospital dependent. And you can think about these drugs cost quite a bit too. So not every hospital is going to have the choice between both of them. Use what you have. At our hospital, we had tocilizumab, but at some outlying hospitals, we had baricitinib and we would have patients transferred into us who have already received Barry. So we didn't necessarily have the pick of both. I wouldn't Particularly have a preference, um, maybe Tosi more. Vikram, what do you think?
1: I agree, Cam. They're really a great and great summary of what we do in real life. There really aren't any head to head studies, and we don't see that coming either of Tosi versus Barry. It looks pretty similar when you add it to steroids in terms of benefit in preventing intubations and ICU admissions and even death. But there are really no head to head studies to show one is better than the other. I do want to. You know, emphasize that patients are already on steroids and we're adding TOSI or Bary on top of them, they become fairly high risk for infections given that we are dual immunosuppressing them. So if a patient, if you're giving your patient both these immunomodulators, please keep an eye out for secondary bacterial infections and fungal infections. There is between a four to six time risk of fungemia when you use these both these agents. Use them because the data is there to use them in patients with advanced disease. But do keep in mind that. The patient's immune system is so immunosuppressed with dual immunomodulators, strong strong immunomodulators as steroids and Tosi, there is a higher risk for secondary bacterial infections, fungal infections. So keep screening for them by sending beta-D glucans and fungal markers as the time comes.
0: Thank you both. I had a couple follow-up questions. Cameron, just one practical thing or logistically how would you handle a patient that you described who maybe um, was admitted on baricitinib or had received a couple of days? And I'm sure it's probably a patient-specific decision, but how do you decide if you give them the dose of TOSI, or are you able to obtain a limited supply of baricitinib for that rare instance?
2: Yeah, for us, we were never able to receive the baricitinib, but if a patient came to us on already having received berry, I would not give them TOSI on top of that only because as Vikram was saying, they're further immunosuppressed. Again, that's going to be very dependent on the management at your specific hospital, but I don't recall giving another drug on top of berry or tosi for that matter.
0: Moving on to our next question. So How do you handle a patient who is just failing? I think we know that there's some patients who just don't do well with COVID. How do you escalate care in a patient where you feel like you're doing the guideline recommended things, but they continue to clinically worsen?
1: Thanks, so Dani, let's break that question up into supportive care for the patient and medical countermeasures, the steroids and the baricitinib that we just spoke about. So let's start with the supportive care. A patient will usually deteriorate from acute hypoxic respiratory failure. So we have, over the last few years, learned of a very systematic stepwise approach. We start with nasal cannula. The patients are doing too well, go to high-flow nasal cannula and start proning at that point. If patients can prone on their own, that's great. If not, we assist them with proning. We usually skip the non-invasive ventilator part unless the patient is a DNI, who not intubate the goals of care. And if the patient is failing high-flow nasal cannula, we often end up intubating the patient, putting on mechanical ventilation. There was this whole paradigm of happy hypoxia where patients looked great at lower SATs. That is a pretty dangerous thing to tolerate. Young people with COVID can have a long cardiopulmonary reserve, a cardiorespiratory reserve, and they might not show signs of distress till they completely crash and burn and decompensate acutely. So don't use the paradigm of happy hypoxia. If they're starting in the 70s high flow, the necessary next step would be to intubate, put them on mechanical ventilation. And follow all the ARDS protocols that there are, you know, lung protective ventilation, proning, of course, use of neuromuscular blockade, if you may. And then in a very small liver of patients, there is the role of ECMO, VV ECMO. Again, that has significantly good data for patients who are good candidates. And usually those are young, otherwise healthy patients with single organ dysfunction. We want to do that within the first seven days before lung fibrosis sets in. But of course, those are patients that we would want to offer or consider VV ECMO as a salvage mechanism. On the therapeutic side, of course, prevention is better than cure. Make sure that your outpatients, if you practice in a clinic, are well vaccinated and duly boosted and so on. But if it's a vaccine failure or absence of a vaccine, steroids are front and center. Remdesivir has a big role to play. If they're outpatient and high risk, Paxlovid seems to have pretty good data behind it. The monoclonals don't work as well in these Neova strains, so that's fallen out of favor. But then the, the second-line biologics that we just spoke about come into play as well. And those would be the major countermeasures that you would offer your patient. Consider anticoagulation. Consider broad spectrum antibiotics as if this is far into the course of COVID pneumonia. But right as you probably have done over the last two years, the best evidence still is breaking up into supportive care in parallel with antiviral and countermeasures. Sorry, Cam, I'm going to get off my... Uh, so books now.
2: Over to you. <laughs> yeah, like I think you pretty much covered it. I don't have much to add to it. Um, we we could mention if patients get to that point where you're trying to wean them from ventilation and it's not successful, getting a a trach is the next step. And Vikram, I I can't remember which study it was, but we kind of compared early trach versus late trach, and I think the early trach found better success in weaning but then do you know what i'm talking about
1: yes so that's the crackman trial and it basically showed that around day to 11 is when you want to start talking or talking to your patients and their families about tracheostomy so that's if you if they're so dependent on the vent at day 10 to day, four, to day 14 you might want to talk to your family to the families of the patients and the fa- patient himself or herself of course about providing a tracheostomy for a long term.
2: We would see quite a few patients who would come in and they may have been weanable from the vent, but a lot of them are so deconditioned by the time they get to us and their musculature is just um, you know, really been through the ringer. And so they end up doing well with a trach and then a very slow wean of the oxygenation after that. And then the they can go through the decannulation process, the possum valve, and eventually have it taken out. Yeah, that's something to think about early on if your patients are not doing well with COVID to prepare the families for that.
0: Dr. Mukherjee, I had a question about one of the drugs that you mentioned a bit earlier that often comes up in in practice from a practical standpoint. How do you handle the use of remdesivir in patients who have severe renal dysfunction given the, the package insert? Recommendation to avoid with an eGFR of less than thirty. And many of these patients, given their severe illness presentation, often have renal dysfunction or might even receive hemodialysis. Are you still administering remdesivir in those situations? And what considerations do you take into account?
1: Yeah, great question, Daniel. You know, remdesivir, especially in the acute in the ICU population, still remains a pretty potent antiviral. Unfortunately, because of renal clearance and presence of renal failure in many of our patients, we are kind of in a bind to not being able to use it in a fair number of critically ill patients. However, I will say that in, in the first wave, when back in spring 2020, when we were getting really hit hard, the number of patients who developed renal failure requiring dialysis was much higher. 30% of our patients required dialysis, around 60% of them had horrible uh, acute kidney injury. In the more recent waves, the omicron wave, the delta wave even, the number of patients who got renal disease to that extent are much lower. We're not sure exactly why this transition happened, but irrespective of the number of patients with concomitant, Reno's disease with their pulmonary disease is much lower, which makes RENA pretty much a mainstay of treatment, especially in the first week of covid impact. It's a potent antiviral, there is some new data coming out about improving mortality, mortality even with remdesivir, as long as we use it early and can reduce the viremic effects of SARS-CoV-2. It's a mainstay of our treatment as long as the patient can tolerate.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. So, starting to transition a bit to the long term sequelae of COVID, we had a question that came in from the audience who was asking if there's anything that
2: you can do for post COVID fatigue. It's tough to come up with a solution for long COVID. Um, I think we discussed this in the module itself, but any COVID at any severity, whether you have no symptoms at all or whether you've been intubated for a month, everyone is at risk for long COVID and there are so many studies and information that's evolving that um, we still need to collect in order to understand it more. And I think that over the next several years, we're going to know more about it and if there is something that we can do to alleviate or prevent these symptoms, then we'll certainly do it.
0: Thank you very much to Dr. Mukherjee and Ms. Smith, and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, Evidence and Guidelines for COVID-19 in Hospital Management, putting it all together, and to view the accredited webcasts associated with this discussion from the Practicing Clinicians Exchange website, please visit the show notes. As always, thank you for listening.